And I hope this morning that as we dig into our text, uh, I hope that it's, uh, it's encouraging to you in your mission here at Florida Coast Church. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to look at Acts 17. It is on page 1026 of the Bibles that you have here. We're going to read verses 16 through the end of the chapter. So this is God's Word. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked. But others said, we'll we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among them were also Dionysius the Areopagus and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, uh, we hear your word read, and uh, we ask that, as we just sang together, we ask that you would speak, O Lord. For God, we know that you do speak through your scriptures, that you've given us your word uh, that was written over thousands of years by numerous different authors. And yet these different authored stories, these different accounts, these poems, these narratives, uh, these wisdom references, uh, 
they are they all come together in such a way to tell the story of Jesus who will come once again to restore the earth, the one who will come to be the perfect judge as Paul taught in Athens. So God, this morning as we as we hear your word proclaimed, we ask that you would uh, you would change us, that you wouldn't leave us where we are, that no matter where we happen to come from, uh, what we brought in this morning, that you would speak to us directly. That's our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we just read in Acts 17, we see that what we're doing is we're looking at a story of Paul speaking at Mars Hill in Athens. And uh, what we're going to do, what we're going to look at specifically is the way that it should inform the way that we do ministry in general, as well as the way that we do ministry in particular. And it's going to look different from town to town. It's going to look different from culture to culture. It's going to look different here at Florida Coast Church than it does in other churches. And what we're going to do is what we're going to do, we're going to see what happens um, as we read in, in Acts 17. And we're going to read it, or as we just read it, I'm sorry. Um, we're going to look at, at what's going on. And the first thing we notice is that Paul uh, gets to Athens. He gets ahead of Timothy and Silas. He had been ministering in a town called Berea. And they faced some trouble that was there. And so the leaders of the, of the church in Berea essentially sent Paul away. They sent Paul to get out of trouble. And uh, that's, a, that's a nice way of saying it. They sent Paul away. And uh, he gets to Athens. He sent him far away. He gets to Athens and he waits. He waits for... Timothy, and he waits for Silas. And as he's waiting, he doesn't just play the tourist. He doesn't just um, hang out. He doesn't do anything like that. He, what he does is he actually starts to walk around the city, and he acts like a missionary does. In fact, he acts the way that God has called all of us to act, to, to, to learn the culture of the city in which God has placed us, to learn how people think, to learn how people breathe, to learn how people eat, to learn how people interact with one another, to learn what people believe. And so Paul does that. He starts to walk around and he, he analyzes the situation that's in front of him. He takes in the local culture. And what he starts to do is he actually starts to exegete the culture. And you can imagine what, what's going on, going on in Paul's life here, in Paul's situation. He takes it all in because whereas Rome in the ancient world was the capital of power and might, that it was the political center of the Roman Empire. Athens, on the other hand, was the cultural center of the Roman Empire. It was the home of the Acropolis. It was the home of the Parthenon. It was the birthplace of democracy. It was the birthplace of Socrates and Plato and Sophocles and Euripides. Um, and it's here in this cultural center, here in this cultural center of Athens, according to verse 16, that our text tells us that Paul was greatly distressed to see that the city was filled with idols. It's filled with idols. Um, we may think that we're a modern people, so we don't deal with idol worship, right? We think that that's what those primitive people did thousands of years ago or thousands of miles away from us. But we are civilized Americans, so we don't deal with idols. We don't worship idols. But we might not craft a, uh, a little golden image or something like that, like you see in Indiana Jones. Um, but uh, 
But I think we do worship idols, don't we? I mean, we, this thing, I'm, I, I probably have better relationship with this thing than I do with most of my family. Um, and I don't think I'm the only one. Um, but we're, we're a people who, who is naturally drawn. We are people who are naturally drawn to things other than what God has called us to be drawn to. And that's the God himself. Athens is known, though, Paul's, let's get back to Paul. Paul's here, and Athens is known as a city that was literally uh, littered with idols. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who translated uh, the scriptures into a kind of a common vernacular, he said this about Athens when he translated, translates it. He says that Athens was a veritable forest of idols. See, they had statues of everything. Uh, some that I can't even really describe here. Um, but Athens was known for being extraordinarily religious. Athens, the, the Athenians were an extraordinarily religious people, more so than other ancient cultures. Sophocles, the great philosopher, said that, that the Athenians were the most pious of all others toward the gods. Uh, Josephus, the, the great Roman um, Historian said that, that the Athenians were the most pious of all the Greeks. Uh, Epimenides said that it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. Or it's like uh, Sam Lamerson from Knox Seminary describes Alabama. He says that there are actually more Baptists there than people. <laughs> I apologize to my Baptist brothers and sisters for that one, but it was a funny joke. I had to go for it. Uh, but this really bothered Paul. This really bothered Paul. It bothered him because he saw people who were really, really spiritual. Uh, they were very aware that there was something out there. There was something else out there other than just me, myself, or us. That there was something greater, something transcendent, something above and beyond them. The Athenians knew this. But Paul was bothered because in all of this, they never found the true answer to their longings. They never found the answer to their longings in the God that was revealed in the scriptures, as well as in the God who revealed himself in nature itself. So see, we have to look about the way that God, or the, sorry, we have to look at the way that Paul goes about trying to right this wrong that he saw there. And this is interesting. This is interesting to note. That Paul doesn't get angry. Paul, Paul's, the, Paul's the outsider, right? Paul's the outsider. He comes to Athens. And he doesn't get angry when he says it. He gets distressed. He gets distressed, but he doesn't get angry and start to demolish all these idols. He doesn't organize a boycott uh, of all the Athenian businesses for their idol worship. Um, He doesn't get a bumper sticker that says, my God is better than your idols or anything like that. And notice what if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the way that God has revealed himself uh, before Jesus was born... In Deuteronomy 7, uh, there's this interesting uh, passage here that, that, that Moses brings to the, the people who've been taken out of uh, slavery in, in Egypt. He says this, he says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land, into the promised land, that you're entering to possess and drives, you out, before, drives out before you many nations, this is what you're to do to them. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord. 
The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. It's very different. It's very different than what Paul's doing here. See, these are a people that God is prepared to bring into this land to drive out what's going on. Paul comes in as the outsider who comes to bring good news. He realizes that some of these efforts, if you know, the bumper sticker or the boycott or, or, or demolishing these idols will be, um, they'll be futile at best. And he realizes that he's in the minority of the culture. He's the minority in the culture that is, frankly, that's ignorant uh, about what they're doing. And that's interesting because it's not unlike the situation that we face today. It's not unlike our culture here in South Florida. The people are very spiritual. They just find it in all different kinds of places, whether in a yoga class or uh, I was just coming up Federal Highway here before I turned on to Atlantic and there was some sort of this spiritual energy healing um, sign that you've seen in the building. I see lots of heads nodding like, yeah, I've seen that too. Um, I've seen it so many times I don't even notice it anymore. Um, so yeah, people are very spiritual. They look for spirituality everywhere. Uh, I read an interview with a with a guy named um, Anton Newcomb. He he's the lead singer for a for a band called the Brian Jonestown Massacre. Forgive the name, um, but he he describes himself as spiritual but not religious. Uh, he says that God is my girlfriend. So he claims some sort of intimate relationship with God, but it's this spiritual kind of relationship. Uh, or you might have noticed this magazine that you can find in restaurants and stores around town for for free. It's one of these magazines they give away uh, called Being Magazine. It's a it's this spiritual new age magazine that you see all over all over town. I don't know if you see it up here in Pompano, but we definitely see it in Fort Lauderdale. And what we see is at least here in South Florida, there seem to be like two different cultures, almost kind of doing this, going past one another. There's a, there's a traditional, moral, Christianized, conservative uh, culture. And then there's a culture that's really, frankly, completely unaware of the church or maybe hostile to the church, but, but I'd say more just disinterested or unaware of the church, post-Christian. Uh, Leslie Newbegin was this great British uh, Presbyterian minister, I'm uh, sorry, missionary in the 50s. And Newbegin left the UK to be a missionary in, um, in India uh, around 1950. Uh, he was the author of a, a books called The Open Secret, Gospel in a Pluralistic Society. Great books. They're books you ought to read. Um, and what he experienced in India, he said, was, was that he was involved in, with a church that was living in mission, on mission, in a very non-Christian culture. So Newbigin, though, ministers in London, or sorry, ministers in India for 30 years. He comes back to the UK 30 years later, and he discovers now that, that now in the late 70s, early 80s, the British church, too, existed in a non-Christian culture. So you see what, we're, what we have here in this day and age, uh, in Europe and in the UK, they, they experienced this about a generation prior to us, about 30 years prior. So the British church in which Newbegin returns from India 
is living in a non-Christian society, but it never adapted the way that they do ministry to this new situation. The church still ran its ministries, assuming, assuming that a stream of, of Christianized people would just walk in the doors, that Christianized, traditional, moral people would simply show up in their services. See, that's the, that's the situation that we're, we're facing. That's the situation in which we live here in South Florida. We have to realize that our culture is made up of people just like what Paul is dealing with in Athens. And that's why there's these different approaches to ministry. And that's why we have to see here that in the text, the first one is Paul's approach uh, in the synagogue as he ministers to the Jews and the God-fearing, Gre- God-fearing Greeks. We see that, that Paul first starts to preach the gospel by traditional means. He goes to the synagogues. He goes to bring the good news of Jesus' resurrection, death and resurrection, to people who are already familiar with the scriptures. The people that he first deals with are people that are familiar with the scriptures. They're familiar with the Old Testament. And that's Paul's normal MO. Earlier in the, in the chapter, uh, he deals with this in Berea and Thessalonica. He goes to the synagogues, and it makes sense because people have this foundational understanding of the scriptures. They have this foundational understanding of what he's talking about. So he can at least refer back to these stories in the Old Testament that point to Jesus. These people in their synagogues already know their Bibles. In fact, the Bereans are known for being some of the most serious about the scriptures. They're waiting and longing for news of the Messiah. So Paul hangs out with them and he tells them about Jesus and how Jesus of Nazareth is this Messiah that they're anticipating. And see, that's Paul's first approach. That's his normal approach that you see there, but not in Athens. The second one is is what he does in Athens. And this is where he engages the culture, where the culture happens to be. And this happens to be, as I said, the center of the cultural and philosophical thought and intellectual debate at the Areopagus where he's taken. And remember, these people know nothing. They know nothing about the scriptures. They know nothing about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, any of these kind of stories. But they are very spiritual. They have this very spiritual understanding. And that's why he employs the method that he does. And he starts by mentioning two things. He points out, he says, Athenians, I've recognized that you're a very religious people. And I, I think the point of this isn't just simply to, to kind of butter up his audience. Um, he notes that he's walking around the city and he passes this one idol that says, to an unknown God or to the unknown God, depending on which translation you look at. See, the, the Athenians are, are so... Uh, so spiritual, they're so superstitious that just in case they missed something, they're like, we got the God of this, we got the God of that, we got the God of this, are we forgetting anything? I don't know, let's make one just in case, just in case we're forgetting something. See, they wanted to leave their options open. And you see what, what Paul does here, it's brilliant. It's brilliant and it's beautiful and it's, and it's loaded with grace. Uh, he gives them an apologetic of the God, an apologetic for the God of the Bible based on their own story. Think about this for a second. He tells the story of the God of the scriptures based on 
their own story, based on this altar to an unknown God that they don't know. He meets them right where they are, where they profess their ignorance about this, the identity of this unknown God. Paul's about to make him known to them. He says, you're longing for something. You're wanting something. You know it's out there. And it's really cool what he does. He strikes a balance between making contact with his audience while at the same time condemning their idolatry. So he doesn't just go right along with it. He condemns their idolatry, but notice how he does it. He says, okay, you recognize that there's a God, a God out there that you don't know. You have an inkling of him. It says Paul himself wrote to the Roman church in chapter 1 of Romans where he says, God himself has made himself plainly known. So you have this inkling, but without Christ, without this revelation of him that we see in the Bible, and this, without that understanding of Jesus, this inkling will lead you nowhere but to loss and hopelessness and ignorance. See, Pascal, Blaise Pascal the Great, philosopher, mathematician, said that there's a God-shaped vacuum inside of each one of us. St. Augustine is famous for saying, for saying that, God, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Uh, G.K. Chesterton uh, said that the man who knocks on the door of the brothel is actually looking for God himself. See, Paul knew this. That they were longing to be fulfilled by something that only Jesus can fulfill. So he tells them about the God of the Bible. He says that God made everything. He gives life to everything. He doesn't dwell in temples that are made by human hands. And he doesn't have to be served by human hands. He's addressing all of their questions about the nature of God himself. See, this is interesting because... uh, he even acknowledges the beliefs of, of two of the different kind of debating parties that, that always sh- showed up at the Areopagus, uh, the Epicureans and the Stoics. He agrees with the Epicurean idea that, that God needs nothing from humanity. Uh, and he also agrees with the Stoic notion that God is the source of all life. So he, he recognizes inklings of truth in, in their teaching. And then he uses this to explain who God is, and then he makes his points of contact. And this, this might be one of my favorite parts of this passage in verse 28. For in him we live and move and we have our being, and we are his offspring. The interesting thing here, if, if you read, um, if you didn't just listen, but you actually read it or you read it on page uh, 1026, you'll notice that, that there's an indentation in like quotes, as though um, referring to the fact that this is Paul saying, hey, as it's known, here's something else. I'm quoting somebody else. I'm quoting a song lyric. I'm quoting a movie line or a book line or something like that. The interesting thing about this is what Paul's doing is he's quoting uh, two different Greek poems. The first, uh, for in him we live and move and have our being, is a poem that reads as follows. Get this. They fashioned a tomb for you, O holy and high one, the Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. For you are not dead. You live and abide forever. For in you we live and move and have our being. 
beautiful poem. You know who that poem's referring to? Zeus. <laughs> Zeus. So, so Paul is taking this poem that's referring to Zeus, the great god of their pantheon, and he's saying, you think it's about Zeus. This is about God himself, the God, the creator of heaven and earth that's been revealed in the man, Jesus Christ, who died and was resurrected. And the second part where he says, we are his offspring, is from another little poem that reads like this, let us begin with Zeus. Never, O men, let us leave him unmentioned. All the ways are full of Zeus. In all the marketplaces of human beings, the sea is full of him. So are the harbors. In every way we have all to do with Zeus, for we are truly his offspring. Again, Paul's saying, you're on to something. You're on to something, and let me reveal it to you what you're looking for. See, the reason I find this interesting is because of the ways he uses these poems. Poems that are talking about Zeus, not Jesus, not the God of the Old Testament. He's acknowledging that in this pagan poetry, there is some recognition of the true nature of God. What he's doing is he's, he's actually citing an authority that they recognize. He's speaking their language. It, it, would, have been, it would have done him no good to, to quote the Bible and say, as Moses said, he said, who in the heck is Moses? I know Epimenides. I know these people who write poems about Zeus. He's speaking their language. He can't quote the scriptures purely because they would have had no familiarity with it. It, had, it held no cultural authority to them. And that's the thing that I want to encourage you in here at Florida Coast Church. You have to recognize that here in Pompano Beach, here in South Florida, people just frankly aren't familiar with the Bible. To them, it has no authority to speak. And that doesn't mean that we abandon the scriptures. Not at all. Don't, 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 please don't hear me say that. It, does, it doesn't mean that we don't use the Bible to engage people, because of course we do. We believe that the scriptures are the very word of God himself. If not, what am I doing up here in, in the first place? What are we all doing here on Sunday morning? What it means is that we have to interpret the culture through the lens of the Bible. Be familiar with what people read what people watch, what people listen to, how people think. Be familiar with art and culture, with movies, music, books, visual arts, the same kind of things that our, our culture is familiar with. At City Church, years ago, we used to do a, a ministry called Cinema Verite. It's a um, French term, uh, literally means truth cinema. And uh, Cinema Verite was a, was a genre of film where they didn't use lighting, they didn't use makeup for actors or anything, and they didn't use tripods. They literally just followed the subject along. If you've ever seen the, the show The Office uh, on TV, that's actually filmed in a cinema verite style, just right in your face, truth cinema. So we did a, we did a ministry called Cinema Verite where we would rent out uh, a local art house movie theater in downtown Fort Lauderdale, and we would show great films uh, once a month on the big screen. And it was great. Um, we showed films like On the Waterfront, Citizen Kane, uh, Magnolia, these films that were known as great uh, works of art that also, we, we kind of have three categories for them. One, they had to be known as a great film, maybe classic or contemporary. 
two, um, they had to lead to spiritual discussion. And three, they had to get people, they had to get butts in seats, is what, the, the, the crass word that we said. So there were some films that we had to, that we really wanted to do, but we, know, we knew no one would come out. And so we did films, like I said, like On the Waterfront with Marlon Brando, Citizen Kane, a film called Magnolia, a film called Fargo, um, which came out in the 90s, uh, about the darkness of the human soul and uh, our need for a representative to actually go before us. Sound familiar? Uh, in the movie, there's a movie called Fight Club, which I'm not, not necessarily going to recommend, but there's this character in it um, that Brad Pitt plays, and he says uh, this line, he says, Our fathers were our models for God. If our fathers bailed, what does it tell you about God? You have to consider the possibility that God does not like you. He never wanted you. And in all probability, he hates you. And you go, what do I even make of that? What do I even make of that? Well, Paul would encourage us not to get angry. That We have to acknowledge that through history, the people's experience with, with God and the church has been tainted. And that, yes, in some way our fathers are models of God, but where our fathers failed, God himself is the perfect father who never bails, who never leaves. He always pursues. He perfectly loves. We can actually contrast the story of the culture with the story of God himself. And we use the gospel to bring the punchline. What people are longing for. They're longing for a father who doesn't leave. They're longing for a father that doesn't bail. See, like Paul, we have to reinterpret popular art and culture. Uh, Johnny Cash, familiar with Johnny Johnny Cash, the man in black, uh, he did this re- very shortly before he died with a with a song by a, a band called Nine Inch Nails. It was a, a song called Hurt, and he took this Nine Inch Nails song and he reinterpreted it. It was this hopeless song, this hopeless tale of of drug abuse and the emptiness of life. And he turns it into this hopeful, gospel-based confessional of a man who's about to die. It's beautiful. See, there are glimmers of light all around us, glimmers of hope all around us, points of contact which we need to engage our surrounding culture. But we don't just leave it there. We don't just engage our popular culture. See, what what Paul did... Uh, and what we're called to do is actually move people from these points of contact to the gospel and the resurrection. See, what Paul does next is he actually proclaims the gospel. He uses their stories that are le- empty, that are, that are left wanting, and he points them to the gospel. He says that this formerly unknown God actually became a man, and he lived with us, but without sin, a life that we can't live. And then he died an excruciating death, on the cross, a death in which each of us deserve. And he was placed in a grave. And then he was raised from the dead. And that grave, and from that grave, uh, he actually uh, came back to life in order that we may have life. See, that's the gospel. The gospel story tells us that though we don't deserve it, though we've done nothing to earn it, only Jesus, through his life and through his death, has made us right with God. And when we do that, when we take that, those popular stories, engage them with the gospel and point them to the gospel, 
We're going to have the same kind of things happen. Florida Coast Church, you're going to have the same kind of things happen that, that Paul saw. Some people are going to sneer. Some people are going to doubt. There's also some who will believe. And that's our hope. Our hope is that God is the God who pursues. We have these points of contact everywhere. And God makes contact with us to begin with. So Florida Coast Church, it's been a, it's been a privilege and an honor to be able to uh, be with you this morning. It's been fun. I, uh, I enjoy these church planting days. I enjoy, um, I enjoy uh, watching and worshiping with, uh, with younger church plants. So it's, it's been an honor. Thank you. Um, pray with me if you would. Our Father and our God, we thank you um, ultimately for Jesus. Uh, we thank you that um, though we think we have it all together, I think we know the answers, we know what we're looking for. Um, and your scriptures tell us that we can't find that on our own. But God, we thank you uh, that you yourself are a God who pursues us. You're a God who chases after us. You're a God who sends people to proclaim this message of hope and healing and resurrection and grace to a life and a world that's looking everywhere else. God, uh, we pray that as, as we hear this story, as we engage with the story of Paul and Athens, uh, that, it would, that, that it would encourage us here, uh, that my prayer is that it would encourage uh, those here at Florida Coast Church to see what they're doing as uh, important for the role of the church. God, that's my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.